This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In the 1990s, life in the hood is going mainstream. But where some depictions are the Hollywood version, rap is the real deal. Hip-hop in the early 90s was like a teenager it was starting to find its footing. For any music company, rap is a multi, multi-million dollar business. A business that's also at the center of culture wars across America. Explicit sexual or violent lyrics. Whores and bitches, those names should not be told children. My 14-year-old son began fantasizing and hero-worshipping the images of thugs and criminals, even to the point of dressing like a gangster. Raps, rapper. People saw it as vulgar. People saw it as violent and that it wasn't something that should be allowed. But opposition from parents and lawmakers does nothing to diminish rap's popularity. It only fuels it. It was a peek into something else that was uh, adventurous, a little dangerous. I think it actually caught more root in the suburbs than it did in the city. For some reason, the white kids in the suburbs were attracted to it. And one of those suburbanites is Jonathan Levin. Raised in the hamlet of Manhasset, Long Island, Jonathan spent his childhood and teenage years developing a strong connection to rap. Jonathan loved rap. He was interested in the racial and cultural complexity in the music. Jonathan even begins writing his own rap lyrics, becoming somewhat of an amateur rapper. He used the music as a means of communication. But the lifestyle depicted in his favorite music is a long way from the reality of his middle-class upbringing, 30 minutes away from the hustle and bustle of New York. He was a popular guy in Manhasset, but school didn't really agree with him. Somewhere along the line, his parents split, 
He was raised by his mother in Long Island. He had a rather upper middle class background and protection in uh, where he's growing up in Long Island. But he didn't want to be part of that. Something had been building in him. After college around the age of 22, Jonathan finally moves to the big city. He finds a modest apartment on New York's Upper West Side. Richard Veloso is a neighbor. He seemed like a really nice guy. I would walk with him with the dog in the park. He was a big Yankee fan. And he was a gentle soul. He really was. Everything was real. There's nothing pretentious about him. He'd worked for an insurance company for several years, but he found it unsatisfying. He had ideas about fairness and justice, ideas about how the business and moneyed world, in many instances, ended up taking advantage of people. Searching for a purpose, Jonathan decides to try his hand at teaching. He enrolls in a Master's of Education program at New York University. I was a professor at New York University's School of Education when Jonathan arrived. He was a very outgoing, gregarious person who was slightly always in a rush. He seemed constantly in a position of trying to make up for lost time. He settles on teaching English because he liked reading, liked literature, liked writing. By chance in 1993, Jonathan lands a job as an English teacher at one of the toughest high schools in the nation, William H. Taft in the Bronx. Quite by accident, he comes across this opportunity to teach at Taft, and he jumps at it. It's an interesting choice. It's certainly one that strips away, at least in my mind, this whole notion of, of privilege. While crime rates are plummeting in the rest of New York City, the Bronx has been left behind. We're held together by the law. That's the principle that keeps us all together. I was a reporter at New York One. The whole narrative about crime going down, people in the Bronx didn't feel that. I grew up in that neighborhood, blocks from Taft High School. When Jonathan told me he was getting a job at Taft High School, I thought, oh my God, <laughs> you, you got a bulletproof vest? You know, I mean, I was, you know, you're joking, but not really. I felt he was a little bit naive about what he was getting himself into. Taft High School had a horrible reputation. It was a dangerous place for the students. It was a dangerous place to be a teacher. I came to the Bronx in 1975. The neighborhood was not a great neighborhood. Unfortunately, we needed metal detectors. Many of the kids who were bringing knives or, or a screwdriver or whatever, these were not bad kids. They were bringing it because they thought it was going to protect them in case they were attacked. Police are reporting a recent increase in gang-related incidents. Children as young as 11 years old are getting into gangs. But to Jonathan's credit, when he saw those kids, he didn't see statistics about gun violence or drug abuse or poverty. He saw kids. He was determined to find a means to communicate with them and give them direction to possibly do something else with their lives. In the beginning, Jonathan struggles to gain the respect and trust of his students. But he understands that their lives are complicated and that some of them come from broken homes. You add that to um, the drug culture and add that to unemployment, low opportunities. 
if you were a teenager living in the Bronx or going to that school, there weren't a lot of reasons to feel optimistic about your future. From the start, Jonathan ditches the traditional rules for teachers. He teaches literature by relating it to kids' lives. Rather than trying to bring some kind of sophisticated high culture, he was connecting on their level. And nothing connects with students more than a shared love of rap. Guess what? From Shakespeare to rap, we're dealing with the same things. We're dealing with lost love. We're dealing with betrayal. We're dealing with jealousy and so forth. In his desire to reach these kids who saw him, a white pilgrim, like, why are you here? You know, you don't really care about us. He used the music to find common ground with them and to get them to talk about their life. Winning his students over isn't easy. Many of them, like 16-year-old Corey Arthur, raised in Brooklyn projects, are street smart and cynical. If you're born in Brooklyn, you're tough. You're tougher than everybody else, and you're going to prove it by any means necessary. I got into trouble in school in Brooklyn. My mother was located in the Bronx, so I had to go to the Bronx. At Taft, Corey lands in Mr. Levin's English class, but he rarely shows. His class was the last class of my day. I just didn't feel like going to it. One day I'm leaving out the back door of school, and he's there. First, I don't know it's him. I just see this white guy, he's smoking, he goes to light his cigarette. The next day I'm thinking to myself, you know what? Can't be that bad, he smokes cigarettes. I smoke cigarettes, so I was all right. So I went to class. I'm looking at the blackboard. I see he got a quote up there by KRS-One. First I thought maybe he's just one of those guys who try to use this as a tool to make the children more amendable. But I realized that, all right, he knows a little something. So I give him a shot. Now that he has his attention, Jonathan encourages Corey to attend class more frequently. He doesn't like, well, you better come to class, but he makes a slight suggestion that maybe it wouldn't be a bad idea. Kind of felt like, you know, damn, maybe I shouldn't come to class. I turned in an assignment, and it, this letter I had wrote to his girl was in there. It was like some love poem stuff, mushy stuff. He gave it back to me. He was like, yo, it was pretty good. He was like, yeah, you should write poems. So I started writing letters and stuff like this. In a 1993 essay for his master's program, Jonathan even writes of Corey as a symbol of student potential. He calls him Carl to protect his privacy. So much of what I am and what I want to do in this life and profession revolves around what I've established with Carl. But even with the extra attention, the pull from the streets is often too hard to break for many of his students. And Corey is no exception. Nearly a year after Jonathan writes the essay, Corey's imprisoned for selling drugs. When I got out, he tried to arrange for me to get to Bronx Community College. But I told him, I don't think me and school won't work out anymore. It's not that I was averse to learning, it's just that learning wasn't a high priority. Jonathan is disappointed when Corey gives up on his education, but he's determined not to let other students fall through the cracks. As the years pass, he devotes more and more time to them, even outside normal teaching hours. He went to the student games, particularly the basketball games, 
But he also went to the program that these kids were enrolled in on Saturday, which had really nothing to do with Taft. He would go to the programs just to be there for the kids. He's an adult and he's on their side. That gradually created a better situation in terms of them believing in him. Although Jonathan showers his students with attention and tries to understand where they're coming from, his own personal life is a mystery to most of them. He reached out to these students. He gave them his personal information. But his life, that was a very gray area. I kind of figured there was something there that was unspoken. He didn't want to acknowledge and didn't want to talk about. It's Friday. It's hot in the city. It's hot in that big boxy building in the Bronx. The Yankees are playing the Red Sox that evening. Despite the summer-like temperatures, Jonathan is due back at the school Saturday morning for a mentoring program. He doesn't show up on Saturday morning. It's unlike Jonathan to miss something at school. He doesn't respond to calls all weekend. Then on Monday, he doesn't show up to school. And that's when alarm bells go off. The principal had tried to call some of the teachers in the school who he was friendly with. They were trying to contact him. We're worried about you. Please call and let us know you're all right. Ultimately, on Monday night, a group went to his apartment with the police. They knock on Jonathan's door, but no one answers. Then they knock on the door of Jonathan's next-door neighbor, Richard Veloso, asking him if he's seen Jonathan. I had not seen him all weekend. They said, uh, would you let us in? Richard grabs his spare key. He offers to go in first to get the dog. I open the door, and I take one step in. It was a smell. 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Danger lurks in the American landscape. No one in their right mind would be out here, which makes it the perfect place to kill someone introducing hot and deadly from id your podcast for classic american true crime served with a side of biscuits and gravy on each episode you'll hear some of id's most shocking stories of murder and betrayal from the mystery of a preacher shot and killed by a bow and arrow to a former prom queen gone missing and found murdered listen to hot and deadly on apple podcasts spotify or wherever you get your podcasts Popular high school English teacher Jonathan Levin hasn't been seen for days. His neighbor, Richard Veloso, has just entered his dark apartment to look for him. I started seeing shapes and things, but as my eyes got adjusted to the, the light, I saw it was a body. The officers enter and find a man face down, lying between the kitchen and living room. It's Jonathan. Detective Thomas McKenna of Manhattan Homicide North receives the dispatch call. We got a beep. There was a new homicide on Columbus Avenue. On the scene, Detective McKenna sees that Jonathan's ankles are bound with duct tape. The medical examiner determines that Jonathan was killed by a gunshot behind his right ear. But he also finds cuts on his torso and neck. There was a knife there, which was apparently the weapon because it had blood stains on it. It was clear that he had gone through some ordeal before he actually died. Uh, he was tied up. He was cut. I knew that it was going to get the attention of not just the police department, but the media. Sure enough, as investigators work, the scene is already luring the press. Police are reporting 31-year-old Jonathan Levin was shot in the head. His hands and feet were duct taped. There was no sign of forced entry to the apartment. Unlike the Bronx, a homicide in the Upper West Side is big news. I remember being out in front of the apartment. The Upper West Side, you know, in the 90s, you felt comfortable. It was a sense of community, but it had edge. Somebody murdered in their apartment definitely sends a spike through people. As the crowd grows outside, investigators continue to gather evidence. A fingerprint is lifted from a roll of duct tape found in Jonathan's apartment. They believe it may have been used to tie Jonathan up. They lifted the prints. They taped them down to one police plaza. His wallet was out, if I remember correctly. Credit cards out of whack. The police find credit cards, but no ATM card. They make a note to ask around at local banks to find out if Jonathan is a customer. There was an answering machine. We played, and there was a couple of phone calls. Hi, John. Can you call me at home tonight so I can make sure you're okay? This must be message 105. We're all a bit worried about you. Give me a shout. We requested what they call Luds and Muds. A Luds and Muds check is a warrant that we get from a court requesting the telephone numbers on the calls that come into the apartment. And we would check out the addresses of where those phone calls came from. 
In an ashtray, they find multiple cigarette butts, implying Jonathan wasn't the only one smoking in the apartment that weekend. Investigators never find a gun. What stands out most is that Jonathan's apartment shows no sign of a forced entry. They check the locks to see if there's any kind of pick marks in them other than a key. Key goes in, it turns. If you're picking them, it, it'll chip away on the drops. He probably buzzed them up. He'd let them into the apartment. Investigators also find Chinese food for two, suggesting Jonathan may have shared his last meal with his killer. It suggests a casual scene. It doesn't suggest a murder scene. Detective McKenna and his team spread out to speak with Jonathan's neighbors. We knock on doors, we ask people, have they heard anything, have you seen anything? From what I understand, he didn't show up for a conference on Saturday. Uh, he was supposed to meet some of the teachers after the conference. That didn't occur. Then yesterday, when he didn't show up for work, they were really concerned. So these cops, they wouldn't say anything. They came in and out, in and out, all night long. This is this now what is going into hours. Police, they were using my apartment as, you know, like ground zero and using my phone because we didn't have cell phones then. The downstairs neighbor reports hearing Jonathan's dog pacing and his TV playing all weekend. Police are all over the neighborhood hunting down seemingly every clue. One of the last people to see him alive was an employee at the deli below his apartment. She made him a sandwich on Saturday. Because you say you saw him. Mm -hmm. You sure of that? Yes. I know when I miss my customers, you know, especially John. Especially John, he, he's here all the time. The first promising tip comes from another neighbor. This one throws investigators for a loop. According to cops, Levin, who had a current girlfriend, was also involved in an affair with a married woman. He was not celibate. He had a lot of girlfriends. One of the initial theories was that maybe he was involved in an affair and that a grieved spouse killed him and tortured him. Could Jonathan be the victim of a love triangle? Was this why he guarded his private life so closely? And there was all kinds of rumors whirling around. Maybe he was a victim of his own choices. Tonight, detectives are rounding up people, questioning strangers and also those who knew Jonathan Levin. Detectives are interviewing his girlfriends, ex-girlfriends, as well as a married woman we're told he was dating. As of now, no names have been released. He had girlfriends. He'd have to run it down. It felt like the push was to turn the victim into a suspect. The person died through misadventure or somebody that they knew killed them in something that they were doing went south. It seemed like that was where investigators were going. At ground zero, as reporters do, they begin to speculate as to what may have happened. And there's instant investigation and speculation. Despite the media speculation, police are keeping a tight lid on the details. They had their reasons, and they don't want to reveal them just yet. At Taft High School, the news of Jonathan's murder sets off a public display of grief. All I can say was when I heard about it, I was in total shock. I couldn't believe it. The entire faculty and students were, were in shock. Everything from students having asthma attacks to literally breaking down an incredible overflow of emotion. He was an excellent teacher. He was young. He was idealistic. He was um, somebody that the, the kids and the staff really liked.
For something like that to happen to Mr. Levin, it's really shocking right now. On Tuesday, students heard the news of his murder. Some were so distressed, they had to be rushed to the hospital. For days, there were students crying. His students. He was the best teacher now, to me, because he understood everybody. He was always there for everybody. As Taft High School grieves, a revelation about Jonathan's family puts the story on the front page. The popular teacher was the son of a wealthy, well-known communications executive. Levin's father, Gerald Levin, became chief executive officer of Time Warner in February of 1992. Total news to me. The son of the CEO of Time Warner, you should be living on Central Park West, not on Columbus Avenue. I worked at Time Warner, and Gerald Levin was the big boss at Time Warner. It changes the conditions by which you, the employee, cover this story. Jonathan is the son of an elite, of the president of one of the largest cable companies in the country. But Jonathan hadn't grown up with wealth. Although his childhood was comfortable, Jonathan's father made his fortune after he and Jonathan's mother were divorced. And Jonathan had made it a point to carve his path on his own. He didn't want to use his father's increasing wealth and prominence as a currency. Jonathan didn't want to trade on that, not when he was working for an insurance company, not when he was a teacher. But the news of Jonathan's family wealth isn't a surprise to all of his students at Taft. Jonathan had talked to his father when he assigned an autobiography project earlier that spring. I remember him revealing to the students, and once it was revealed to the students, obviously it then became knowledge among the staff. The students are initially shocked that the son of a millionaire would be teaching in the South Bronx. He was a very special person. He didn't act like his father was a millionaire. He, he didn't act like he was too good for nobody. He was just there for everybody. Following the casket, Jonathan's father, Time Warner Chief Gerald Levin, was at near collapse as he entered the funeral service for a son he called his hero. Jonathan's funeral was held at Park Avenue Synagogue. It holds a couple of thousand people, probably. And the place was packed. A lot of emotion. And people who were strangers, who didn't know him, came to that funeral because they felt connected to his story. It was like a premiere of a movie or something. All of these celebrities were showing up, you know, and they were all marching up the stairs, and media was all obviously all there. Ted Turner, who at the time was married to Jane Fonda. They were sitting right behind me. A lot of students showed up. But it was touching and it was nice to see people pay their respects to this young man. While Jonathan's loved ones grieve, police tell the press they are working through leads. Cops are beginning to shy away from the jealous girlfriend angle, while police say he was dating at least three women off and on, including one who may have been married. But cops say at this point they have no information that suggests a jealous boyfriend is behind the murder. Because of his father's wealth, police are beginning to believe Jonathan was murdered for money. On the street, people start to speculate as to what may have led to Jonathan's death. And it's a mix of various things, mix of theories. And it was overwhelming because of this whole whirlwind of who his father was and all the speculation about how he was killed, why he was killed. A thousand miles away, FBI agents in Chicago consider another possibility. 
they are on the hunt for a dangerous man named Andrew Cunanan. Andrew Cunanan was a serial killer who was on the FBI's most wanted list for the several murders that he committed. Some of those people were his lovers. Rumors were whirling around that Jonathan was gay, that he could have been a victim of Cunanan. The FBI has linked Cunanan to another murder in Pennsville, New Jersey, only 120 miles from New York City. We never really spoke about women. There were rumors that he was gay. Jonathan could have been a victim of Cunanan. The last confirmed sighting of Cunanan placed him in Chicago, but FBI investigators believe he was in the tri-state area when Jonathan was murdered. Cunanan was known to use duct tape and targeted wealthy men. But the FBI can't find any clear connection between Cunanan and Jonathan. None of this made sense. None of these rumors, these accusations made any sense. The Cunanan theory is placed on the back burner as the NYPD continues to review other evidence. In just over a month, Cunanan will become infamous for the murder of beloved fashion designer Gianni Versace. The police at the time, even their theories, seem to be all over the place. Many of these theories are based off of tips, informed by the media frenzy the case has created. You might get a thousand phone calls on a case, a big case. People would call up, give you this, give you that. You have to run it down. But you know as soon as it came in, it just didn't fit into the equation at all. The added media attention is enhanced by the tough stance Mayor Rudy Giuliani has taken towards crime. My job is not to build up the size of the police department. It's already 30,000. My job is to redeploy that police department to the streets of the city. In 1997, this was the final year of Giuliani's first term. And at the time, the city had touted in early 97 that crime was on its way down, double digits. The cops were determined to crack this case. It looked horrible for the city. This was not the city Giuliani wanted to promote to the rest of the world. As investigators look at the evidence, the suspicion that Jonathan was murdered for money gains traction. That story of him being a wealthy, rich kid. His father was the CEO of Time Warner. Why wouldn't he have a lot of money? Detectives have a breakthrough when they discover that Jonathan's ATM card was used at a bank machine two blocks away from his apartment at 5.15 p.m. on the day he was murdered. We checked with the bank and we found out that there had been a withdrawal. The surveillance for the ATMs revealed it wasn't uh, Jonathan Levin. The footage shows a man withdrawing $800 in two separate transactions. It's too fuzzy to see exactly who the people are. Hoping to uncover more information, investigators revisit the knife wounds Jonathan suffered and develop a partial theory of what happened on May 31st. They tie him up. I'm sure they, they worked him over a bit, scared the hell out of him. They hold a knife to his chin, his neck, to make him give him the pin number. If their earlier premise is correct, that he willingly opened the door to his killer, he must have known them. Maybe he was even expecting them. Investigators take another look at Jonathan's phone calls and messages from his answering machine. And among the messages from friends and colleagues, one stands out. Cops want to know if his killer knew Levin and had been to the apartment before. And cops say on this answering machine, there was an urgent call from one student who said he needed to see Levin right away. One of the calls that came in was a payphone from two blocks away. He didn't get him on one phone call. So he left a message. Mr. Levin 
this is Corey, and I have a problem. I'd like to come over and talk to you. It is clearly a student because he says, Mr. Levin, he dresses Jonathan the way you address a teacher. Detectives go to Taft. They spoke to other teachers. They spoke to students. What kind of guy is he? Would it be normal for a student to have a phone number? While a teacher receiving after-hours phone calls from students may seem like a red flag, investigators learned that it was not unusual for Levin to meet up with students outside of class. Jonathan didn't have many of the boundaries that other teachers had. Whenever I would be absent or any student, he would call home and find out why were they absent, if, if there was any problem. He let them into his personal life, and he took them on field trips. Cops ask if Jonathan has any students named Corey. There are no current students with that name. And then, as Detective McKenna tries to locate someone named Corey, the investigators get a new break in the case. The fingerprint lifted from the duct tape has a hit in the system. He had three arrests in New York City for drugs, for possession. The print is a match for the person that left a message on Jonathan's answering machine. This is Corey Arthur. Police name a suspect. Corey Arthur. Corey was a student of Jonathan. Do we know if Corey Arthur actually killed his mentor? Police need the public's help to find him. The media becomes a valuable tool. It was a media storm. 19-year-old Corey Arthur, he's described as six feet tall, 200 pounds with a scar on his forehead and maybe cuts on his hands. The NYPD tactical team hits multiple locations in Brooklyn. For the past 48 hours, police have raided a number of locations. Each time, according to the chief detectives, they were a step behind key suspect Corey Arthur. Police raided a girlfriend's home and Arthur's sister's home in Bed-Stuy this afternoon. At one of the locations, cops say they recovered some of Arthur's clothing that was covered in blood. We saturated Brooklyn, six teams, which is 12 guys. Well, yeah, he was here, but he left. He went here, he went there. We were about an hour behind him. As police work through Brooklyn, an ex-girlfriend of Corey provides the name of a possible accomplice. She says that the crime was not committed by a single person. There was a second person involved, someone named Montoon Hart. Montoon's relationship with Corey is unclear. They seem to know each other from the neighborhood, but they don't seem to be friends. Based on a tip, Montoon is quickly arrested in the Brownsville neighborhood of Brooklyn. After hours of questioning and a handwritten confession, he admits to being at Jonathan's apartment and implicates Corey. Montoon makes himself seem like an unwitting accomplice. He just sort of tagged along and went into the apartment. They went to him for money. Maybe he asked him for money, maybe the teacher said no. According to Montoon, Corey had the gun. He told Montoon to grab the duct tape, and it was Corey's idea to use the knife. Montoon depicts Corey as being cruel. He depicts Jonathan as pleading with Corey and asking Corey why he's doing this. They couldn't keep him alive because he would identify them and, and they would go to jail. For Montoon, this is a crime for which Corey is fully responsible. It's a crime that Corey drives to its deadly conclusion. Montoon is just a passenger. The race to find Corey Arthur intensifies. You've got to come up with some place where this kid is at and you want it as quick as possible. 
Finally, with the help of an ex-girlfriend, police track Corey down at his grandmother's house in the Bedford-Stuyvesant projects. The apprehension is made by a tactical NYPD unit, which suggests just how serious the police department was treating this and how worried they were that Corey was armed and dangerous. Today, uh, the police arrested Corey Arthur, who's 19 years old, and Montoon Hart, who's 25 years old. Corey Arthur is charged with first-degree murder and robbery. Montoon Hart is charged with second-degree murder and robbery in the first degree. During his interrogation, Corey gives a completely different story from Montoon's, one that doesn't even involve Montoon. He claims he went to see Jonathan on his own. Corey says that they're hanging out when men burst into the apartment and kill Jonathan. So there's essentially an ambush. To account for his fingerprints, Corey says he is forced by these assailants, whom he can't name, to tie up Jonathan. Corey tells police he then fled the apartment and that he only learned of Levin's death later. He didn't come forward because he was afraid he would be accused. He refuses to name names or talk about the details of the crime to this day. I'm not going to talk about that day. His family deserves more than that. There's real pain involved, real feelings involved. If they want to know on a more personal level, I've always made myself accessible to them. As the perpetrators await trial, the media shines a harsh light on Corey Arthur. But the media also finds a third culprit in the crime. The victim, Jonathan Levin. People picked apart the way he taught. Well, he got himself in trouble by getting too close to these students. He was willing to use unconventional means to educate and reach his kids. While his story is one of service and dedication, it is a cautionary tale of boundaries and precautions. When Corey's trial begins, it's expected to last for five weeks, with the prosecution calling up to 70 witnesses. District Attorney Robert Morgenthau wants to get this conviction. And he has a good case, but it's not a flawless case. Ultimately, the evidence against Corey is enough for a conviction. But prosecutors are unable to convince the jury that Corey is the one who pulled the trigger. Corey did not get first-degree murder. He got second-degree murder with a minimum sentence of 25 years. That was disappointing to some because they thought it should be heavier. Corey's sentencing on December 10th, 1998, provides an opportunity for Jonathan's mother, Carol, to speak directly to Corey. One of the most powerful moments of the trial is a statement Carol Levin makes. She indignantly and righteously accuses Corey of taking advantage of the one person who cared about him. She can never forgive him for it, nor should she have to. The case is not yet over. Montoon Hart has yet to be tried and faces a possible life sentence. When it comes time for Montoon Hart's trial on January 27, 1999, the family hopes for justice. Montoon's defense argues his confession is unreliable because he was drunk when he gave it. A jury has acquitted the second defendant accused of murdering Bronx teacher Jonathan Levin, 26-year-old Montoon Hart. 
In some ways, what's more galling is that Montoon Hart is entirely absolved of the crime. Corey Arthur continues to serve his 25-year sentence in a New York State prison. While he won't talk about what happened that day, he admits that Jonathan would be alive if it wasn't for him. I take responsibility for the death of Jonathan Levin. I can't bring him back, and I can't make people stop hurting him. At Taft, both teachers and students are still reeling from the death of a beloved teacher and the realization that it was brought on by one of his students. It was scary to think that as teachers, we could be in a situation like that, any one of us. All of us had former students out there who uh, could have been the same type of, of person as Corey Arthur. Does that mean that we, as teachers, should have stopped any relationship that we would have had with a student? No, I don't believe that that was the case, and that should have been the case. What I think should be remembered about Jonathan is the fact that he was a very enthusiastic teacher, very dedicated. Unfortunately, he didn't have that much time, and that's the tragedy. He knew that, that he couldn't save the world, he couldn't save Taft, he couldn't save all of these lives, but that he could make a difference. His students were robbed of 21 years, robbed of that empathy from a person who could have made other choices and lived a completely different life. I'm sure a lot of people, certainly educators, ask themselves, how far is too far? How much is too much? But he left a legacy of caring and we need more people like him. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> 